So who are you and how are you saving the world? I'm Emily Hazelwood, and I'm a co-founder of Blue Latitudes, which is a women-owned uh, marine environmental consulting firm that specializes in working in the offshore space on converting offshore oil platforms into artificial reefs. And I'm also a co-founder of the Blue Latitudes Foundation, which is um, a nonprofit organization that focuses on areas of our oceans where industry and environment intersects could have had a positive net impact on the oceans. And I'm Amber Sparks. I am the other half of Blue Latitudes and the Blue Latitudes Foundation. Emily and I met at graduate school at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. We're both marine scientists, we're avid divers, and we have a passion for preserving and protecting our oceans. And we're doing it by working with the offshore energy industry and helping them to purpose their structures into artificial reefs. Okay. Nigel, do you have a question? That's, that's a wonderful lead-in, and thank you very much. In your Rictories projects, you know, projects exist in a context with varying political, social, um, community dynamics. So in your projects, what were sort of the political and social factors that might have encouraged or inhibit, inhibited the consideration of an RTR initiative? Well, before we kind of dive into that question, I think it's important to describe a little bit about what Riggs Sharif's is. So where we come in and what Riggs Sharif's is, is at the end of the useful life of an offshore oil and gas platform. Um, so when it's no longer needed for drilling or extracting oil and gas reserves, a decision point comes where the operator must decide whether they're going to completely remove the structure or if there is an alternative, such as leaving it in place as an artificial reef. When you leave a structure like this in place as an artificial reef, you remove everything that's above the sea surface and you remove all of the drilling infrastructure and you must seal and cap the wells in the exact same way as if you were going to completely remove it. So that the end result, all that's left is the jacket or the beams and cross beams of the oil and gas platform. And that's what supports the marine life. This is, can be a challenging concept for folks because I think one of the biggest issues is that most people are not you know, divers or marine scientists. You, know, you never have um, any sort of concept of what could be below the surface. When most people see an offshore oil and gas platform, they're reminded of events like the Exxon Valdez or the BP oil spill. They don't associate or have a positive connotation when it comes to an oil platform. They don't certainly don't think thriving, beautiful reef. Um, but unfortunately, that really is the case. We, we see that these oil platforms, you know, there's been a multitude of studies done over the last 30, 40, year, 40 years, and especially in California, they're some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet which is wild and saying a lot for an offshore oil and gas platform. So one of the issues that we encounter is public perception and this issue of greenwashing. You know, it's this idea that these oil companies are getting out of their obligations and they don't have to spend all this money to remove an offshore structure, they can just abandon it. And even the content, you know, the, the term abandonment is a negative connotation with that. So I think one of the biggest issues that we face is public perception of this program. And I think Amber can touch on some of the other political and economic factors that come in there. Absolutely. Thank you for that intro, Emily. Politically, this program has can be very complex because it involves many different stakeholders. And in many cases, the liability for that structure is actually tr transferred to the state. So a state will manage it as they would any other artificial reef. And in order for that transfer of liability, you have to create a political pathway to enable that. Some places like Texas, Louisiana, throughout the Gulf of Mexico, where they've been actively using their structures for over 30 years, they have an established, they've established laws and a political system that makes it easy for that transfer of liability to go to the state. The state manages these structures like they would any of their other offshore, offshore reefs, offshore artificial reefs. But in places like in California, where we actually have a rigs to reef law, but the political pathway for implementation has not yet been developed. So there is not the communication channels between the multiple groups, such as Department of Fish and Wildlife, State 
Lands Commission, the Coastal Commission, um, they all need to work together in order to develop a rigs to reef program that could accept the liability. And the United States has a different political agenda than what you're going to find in other areas of the world, such as the North Sea or in Southeast Asia, where some of and most of these oil platforms are actually owned by the state. They're owned by the government. And that's not the way it is in the United States. In the United States, they're private entities that are owning those structures. So in areas like, like Malaysia or Thailand, where the government is overseeing that ownership, it would be a different political pathway and there'd be different opportunities and constraints associated with actually implementing this type of an alternative. I know that here we're talking, this question really focuses on social and political implications, but I do think that it also implies how it impacts and economics ties in here because of course, there's got to be some sort of financial incentive, and we do see that in the United States where we have functioning rig reef programs, approximately 50% of any cost savings that an oil company would reap from reefing their structures goes back to the state. So if you envision that an oil company saves a million dollars by by reefing their structure because they don't have to remove all that infrastructure from the seafloor, sea 500,000 would go back to the state into an endowment for marine preservation and conservation. That money would help fund the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is then taking on the liability. So all of the implications for the political pathways are also tied in with kind of that economic incentive that draws in not only the oil stakeholders because of that cost savings, but also draws in the government and the state to participate because they get to reap financial benefits as well. I really like that response because it pulls together quite a few things that you can't separate politics and economics. And um, and, and the other part as well is that these issues are contextual because in even in this, this state, which is one country, but 50 very different states, there are different political pathways depending on the state that you're in. And then of course, if you go to a country where they, they um, the rigs are owned by the government, like in Trinidad, because some of them are owned by the state. Um, you you have an entirely different set of calculations to enact an, an, a, um, a reefing program. So that, 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 that's really fantastic. Um, so if, if I were to sort of summarize some of the some of the areas where a political pathway would have existed and they were able to enact it were like Louisiana and Texas and others where there is a law, but the political pathway is still being defined as sort of like California. Anything in the UK at all? Do, has any, have you had any discussions with anybody in the UK? you know anything about what might have happened in the UK or, or Europe, the North Sea, for example? Yeah, I mean, in the North Sea, we're seeing a very similar political environment that we see in California, yeah. um, you know, but they face even more challenges because the North Sea isn't just governed by one country. There's so many countries that all have their own um, ideas about how these structures and how those ocean resources should be managed. Um, but we encounter a lot of the same issues, especially with fishery stakeholders there. You know, these platforms, they inhibit trawling. And trawling, especially in the North Sea, is a major, major industry. So we see a lot of conflicts that come up from just the fact that there's so many different jurisdictions there. They're also governed by, you know, different stakeholders that have more of a powerful influence, you know, these trawl fishermen. Um, but, you know, I think then the, the North Sea, they're also governed by this uh, ocean dumping law which is basically prohibits you from leaving any sort of man-made infrastructure in the ocean. And an oil platform, it's man-made, it's, you know, it's artificial, it's not supposed to be there. So if under the context of this ocean dumping law and um, OSPAR, you, you know, we really get governed by what can and cannot be left in the ocean. However, there's a unique aspect of decommissioning in the North Sea is that it ends up ultimately a lot of it falling to the taxpayers. And so I think that also has an influence about how people might, you know, they might be anti this program, but they're like, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's some alternatives here that might be um, equally productive for the environment as well as the economy. Um, the North Sea has had a trouble past with this, you know, they, with the Brent Spark, that was, you know, the kind of the tipping point for how this program was viewed in the North Sea. Um, with the Brent Spark, it was a shell floating offshore production facility 
um, and they wanted to uh, leave it in place as an artificial reef. Greenpeace kind of got hold of this and really attacked them for saying, you're abandoning this infrastructure. There is no environmental benefit. You're just trying to get out of the costs associated with removing it because, you know, removing some of these structures is exorbitant. It's, yeah. it's really expensive, uh, way, way above $100 million. So I, they really got this negative spin of, you know, they're greenwashing. They're saying there's an environmental benefit. There's not. Reality, they're just dumping. And that really um, did a lot to create a negative cast on this program in the North Sea. And at the time, Rigsterace was still kind of a relatively new concept. Rigsterace is not that old. It's only been around since the late 1980s, and it's really started to pick up pace in the last few years. But at the time when this was happening, it was it was not practiced worldwide. Other countries really weren't looking at it. So this was very new, and it really there wasn't as much research. Also, the North Sea is very turbulent. You know, in, in California, in the Gulf of Mexico, it's not as difficult to go out there and do long-term research. That's starting to change in the North Sea as more operators are allowing scientists to do research on their structures and better understand the ecosystems on their structures. But it's come a long way since that initial Brent Spar decommissioning project. And I do think the tide is very slowly starting to turn in that area. Great. I, I like that quite a lot. I'll um, hand you over to Rich for the next question. It's actually a follow-up, which... <laughs> Um, I, I think you 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 kind of covered, and that was just to ask about roadblocks. I think you covered some of the roadblocks. Oh, we did, yeah. Um, so I'll ask this one. Uh, in your, um, well, actually, let me let you follow up on that. Uh, what do you see as the key roadblocks besides some of the ones that you've mentioned um, for for initiating a rigs to reef project? Well, one of the roadblocks that we haven't addressed yet is how reefing these structures impacts other stakeholders and other ocean users. Because although our oceans are expansive and wide, there are certain areas where these structures are where they overlap with other industries such as commercial fishermen or offshore aquaculture or even new developments such as offshore wind farms or the laying of, of cables for communication. There are many uses for our sea floor. And what we're finding is that by reefing these structures, you are creating a permanent block, a perma an actual roadblock on the ocean floor that will be per a permanent fixture. And, and it could inhibit some of those other industries. And so that's a really big roadblock. And the government and that it is aware of this and they are seeking for more information when it comes to reefing a structure. They don't want to just understand the ecological benefits or how this will sustain local fisheries. They really want to understand how is this going to impact our other ocean users and how can we minimize any sort of negative interaction between those users. That's an excellent example and coming from telecom um, and understanding the idea of uh, laying massive fiber optic cables uh, between continents this, this idea of a physical roadblock which is easy to picture um, uh, helps uh, help will help our students understand the idea of a roadblock in a very very physical and tactical way right you yeah. can't with the the ship has to take a wide turn and go literally go around this um, this roadblock which is now an established reef so fantastic okay i think we're back to you yeah, we on to, to, to the next one, so thanks again. Um, when you're putting together the case for an RTR project, because in, in project management, we tend to talk a lot about creating a business case or rationale in the early stage of um, arguing for a given project. You talked a little bit about some of the quantitative like, economic factors. Um, so in addition to those, what qualitative areas do you consider as part of the rationale? What things that can't necessarily be quantified to form part of a business case for a given our project? That's a good question. I think there's really two layers to this question. There's more of the conceptual, um, what does this mean for other industries that are working offshore, but also from on a case-by-case -case basis when you're looking at an individual platform that's being considered for rigs to reefs. Um, you know, from a qualitative perspective, what you're really looking for is it, 
will this benefit the environment? You know, from an oil company perspective, it's not always the best option for them from an economic perspective. It could be that the price of scrap metal is very high and it's very close to shore. If they take it to shore, they're going to make a lot more money by scrapping it. Um, and if it's closer to shore, it's very easy to decommission. Um, in some cases, these, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, we've got this long sloping shelf where you can have platforms that are 400 miles offshore and they're not in super deep water. But it's a lot, it's very expensive to be able to bring that all the way back to shore, but you're not dealing with something that's in 4,000 feet, but, you know, maybe there's an environmental benefit to reaping on its side there. Um, so in some cases, we're looking at the finances, but if you're going to start to dig into the environmental reasons, there's always a carbon footprint associated with decommissioning, um, having work vessels that are mobbing very far offshore and working for weeks at a time to remove something that's the size of an empire state building, you're going to have a carbon footprint associated with that. So if you can limit time offshore, that's always a benefit. You know, you're also looking at the environment that's surrounding these platforms. In some cases, for example, if you had a platform at the base of the Mississippi River, you're going to be looking at an environment that's highly sedimented. You're not really going to see very clear water because there's a lot of nutrients and runoff that'll come from the Mississippi River. It might not be the best candidate to reef. Um, or same goes for a platform that's very, very shallow. If you're removing the upper 85 feet as in a traditional rigs to reach project, you're removing the platforms in 100 feet of water, you're really removing the majority of the habitat. So you want to be looking at where the platform is located. Um, if it's reefed, what will that reefing look like? You know, there's three ways to reef. You can remove the upper 85 feet, take that to shore and leave the standing jacket. You can topple it on its side or you can... Um, take the upper portion of the platform below the surface and place it next to the original structure. Each of those is going to have a different environmental impact or benefit. Um, and I think that's also part of the consideration. You know, if, if you're going to reef something outside in 2,000 feet of water, you know, one, it's not going to be enjoyed by recreational divers. And two, you're looking at a completely different environment. Um, it's a very sensitive environment when you get down to those water depths. Yeah. But then from a conceptual perspective, you know, Offshore oil and gas may be on its way out, but we're seeing other industries on the way in, mainly offshore wind. And, you know, as we start to ramp up production of offshore wind, we also need to be cognizant about the end of life for these structures. And I think a lot of these operators are thinking about what happens to oil and gas platforms at the end of their life. You know, some of these floating, um, some of these offshore wind farms are floating, so they won't be facing the same issues. But a lot of them are on fixed structures, which are, you know, even though the energy that's produced is much cleaner, you're dealing with is a lot of the same issues with fisheries and with the types of marine life that grows on the structure. So I think what happens to oil and gas platforms that at the end of their life will have implications for other offshore uh, energy industries that are moving in to replace the oil and gas industry. I really like that point um, that um, you are it's it's um sort of like you we've got a existing industry we're trying to sunset but the industry that that's coming in is still putting physical structures offshore so the same political path that you have established for removing oil and gas structures is the same one that has to be adapted for wind structures um and it, it's an area that we're pretty much overlooking now so i think it's a really good point to, to bring in at this point in time we, in, in project management, we would call this lessons learned between industries, right? Yeah. So the projects that you run have some significant um, findings and knowledge transfer for those in the wind, um, offshore wind industry, which is a, a good thing. I think yeah. there's a lesson learned just in the name of your whole initiative, Rigs to Reefs, because it brings to mind the end of the project. And most project managers, when I say the end, not the ribbon cutting ceremony, but the end of life of the product of the project. Most project managers not only fail to consider that, they don't want to consider that, no. right? Because the, their whole focus is on turning up a new service, uh, building something like a, a structure, and they really want to be done and on, on to their next project. They hate to think about the end of life of a project because that's not their business they see, but we think it is. Okay. Uh, the next question um, that I have is a kind of nerdy project management question, and it's about milestones and timeframes. So we don't need you to share Gantt charts with us or anything like that, but 
what are the milestones and timeframes for a typical project and what, um, what kind of activities and expertise can you discuss? Um, sub, what kind of subject matter expertise do you need? So we're talking about resources, milestones, timeframes, a little bit of the project management context here. Definitely, well, I can get some insight into that because when it comes time to, to decommission, the thought is, okay, the oil well is drying up. Let's get started on, on building out our plan for decommissioning. But that's not the case. Decommissioning and plans for decommissioning should begin at installation. You install and then you start thinking about, all right, now how are we going? What does the end of life look like? How, how long are we going to be pumping at, at this reserve? So during that, the production and operational lifespan you need the expertise of those who are understanding how much reserves you're getting up and how profitable it is for the company, because that will determine your decommissioning timeline. So throughout operations, you need that expertise of understanding what you're bringing in and how it, it relates to your future decommissioning timeline. So during operations, you know, we're watching to see how that well is producing. And let's say after 10 years or so, they predict, okay, we, we've got about five more years at this reserve. So let's you know, start to take in some more actions here. So that's when they bring in other expertise to start examine their alternatives. Emily and I come in with an ecological and environmental expertise. We are looking at their structures for the potential alternative use of a reef. So we'll do environmental surveys and other you know, quantitative surveys to understand the value of these structures as an artificial leaf. They might bring in other expertise to understand the economics of their alternatives. And what, we're, how are we going to, if we reef, what are the economics associated with that? If we fully remove, what are the economics with that? And that ec economic expertise is critical on a case-by-case -case basis because it depends on where that structure is, how deep it is. Is it in close proximity to a port? Does that port have the infrastructure to properly decommission all this material? So those are all questions that are gonna to start to be answered as you approach maybe within five years of that decommissioning timeline. And then when it comes time to actually decommission, you have the expertise of plugging and abandoning the wells that's what happens first. And then based off of your alternative, you're going to decommission and dismantle the actual platform jacket or repurpose it in some alternative way. Okay. Yeah, so thanks. This, that helps put things in context. We need our project managers to think in terms of milestones and deadlines and deliverables, of course. But uh, the idea that the planning continues beyond the um, operation of the well and all the, the new sets of milestones and deliverables for turning it into a reef, very important to consider. Nigel, back to you. Well, I'll, I'll skip on to our, our, our next questions um, because typically at, a, at any location, and you, you sort of hinted at this before when you talked about Greenpeace, there's a number of interests, activities, things are already going on, and perspectives that might be shared about your project and other parallel initiatives. So um, maybe as part of developing the political pathway or building, making the argument for, for RTR projects, how do you consider, consider these um, additional initiatives and how do you align what you do with what might be happening in a community or in a location? That's a really interesting question and it's something that um, when we look into this issue in different areas of the world, it's so different. Um, you know, these planning initiatives, the local communities, the local NGOs, you know, who is involved in this issue. And that perspective has significantly changed over time, especially in the last 10 years. Um, I can speak, especially for California, 10 years ago, this issue, you know, wouldn't people wouldn't even bat an eye they'd want them gone they just don't want these oil platforms here in california um but you know recent events starting with the bankruptcy of an oil company that was the result of a ruptured pipeline the state is now facing the decommissioning of one of its structures 
But what's unique here is that the state is the one that's going to have to deal with the decommissioning as opposed to the oil company because the oil company went bankrupt. This is casting a new light on this issue because now it's directly in front of the state on their plate as something that they need to manage. And as a result, they've been having these town halls. And these town halls have been very interesting for us to sit in on and listen because all sorts of stakeholders chime in with different backgrounds, with different interests. Um, and we've learned a lot. You know, we've worked on this issue for almost 10 years now. And what we're finding out about what stakeholders are interested in, what they want, what they don't want has changed. We've actually, we're, we've been pleasantly surprised, I should say, um, even just from fishermen, all of a sudden now we're hearing from fishermen that want the entire structure to stay in place because they recognize the benefits of these structures producing some of these uh, species that they rely on. And that's a brand new perspective. Um, 10 years ago, fishermen were the ones that were the most anti-rig sharifs in California. And so sitting in on these town halls has been very interesting for us because it's giving us an idea, a better idea of how, where stakeholders are at in California. Um, and it's also giving us a better idea of how these projects can be managed in other regions of the world where Rigs to Reefs is coming. It's a new concept, though, um, and how to engage with these different stakeholders. You know, the town halls have been very informative because, you know, it introduces all these different NGOs, these individuals, their concerns. Um, and a lot of these issues or these concerns that they're expressing are not ones that we've heard before. Um, so we found that these town halls have been very helpful in terms of identifying those issues. You know, what we get in California also is all these long-term plans for um, coastal development and ocean protection. A lot of these areas, you know, especially in the United States, we're getting these climate action plans that are coming out and how they're going to align with climate action plans. Decommissioning is big business. It's a big carbon footprint. Um, you know, that, and that doesn't mean just because you're removing them, you're going to eliminate, you know, these, you're going to make it yourself greener. Um, you also need to consider about how you're removing them and what that means for future offshore development. So California is looking at offshore wind coming in. How are they going to eliminate or lessen that carbon footprint that comes with the construction of these um, materials? And are they going to come out of the ports in California? So I think not only from a community perspective about how to engage with them, but we're starting to see how these projects start to align or don't align with climate action plans um, throughout the United States. I like that. And, uh, and of course, since every community is different, every geography is different, every um, social community is different, you, these dynamics, there's not going to be a one size fits all. Everything is an individual case study. Exactly. So yeah. when there is a, a, um, a, a clash, let's say, between um, a local initiative, let's say they want a particular climate protection measure versus a rig to reef project, how, how have those things been negotiated or mediated? Um, well, I, could you give me an example? Well, I'm trying to think of one on the fly, really. Um, if, let's say, there's a proposed wind project that's coming in and there's a there's a rig at that location that you could leave in place as a reef or you can use as a foundation for a wind, um, a wind platform or a wind installation, um, what might be the considerations driving you, um, a community towards rectory versus let's remove it and put in wind power instead? Well, you, you mean you actually touched on um, an interesting idea and one that we're seeing come up a lot is folks looking at, okay, if we leave these in place as reefs, maybe we leave more of the infrastructure in place and we build on top of that by installing wind farms on these structures. Mm -hmm. um, and that conversation's actually come up quite a lot in the Gulf of Mexico because it's sort of a win-win, right? You, yeah. You're saving for the environment, you're limiting the impact offshore by building on existing infrastructure. Um, and that's a creative way of thinking about it, actually. So when you have these conflicts that come together, what are some creative ways of sort of mediating those different conflicting parties for the same end goal? Um, and honestly, that's always a better decision if you can build on and repurpose this existing material. You know, it often gets left out of the, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. We forget about repurpose. Um, and that's yeah. reusing this existing material, but for a new, for a new project. Um, and I think a lot of times that's something we'd love to see visited more often. Of course, there's complexities with that. You're dealing with very old structures. You'd have to retrofit them, et cetera. 
Um, but there's an opportunity there because you're dealing with something that was designed to stay in the water column for a long, long time. It's a really good point. Yeah, Thank good you. answer. Rich, anything you want to add there? Well, I just wanted to bring up the fact that I've just blogged uh, yesterday uh, or so, maybe two days ago, about the Cape Cod um, Climate Action Plan. A Cape Cod Commission just um, produced a, I don't, I think it's, uh, I'm not, I don't know if it's 100 pages, but it's a long, detailed climate action plan. Uh, and it's it's a real good read. Uh, even the executive summary, which is only 14 pages, is a, is a good read. So I point people to the, um, to take a look at that. Um, I'm going to shift to the next question, uh, if it's okay, because it's kind of a nice segue. You were, we've already been talking a lot about stakeholder management. So um, the, the full question is that there are different kinds of communities, communities of place and communities of interest. Communities of place would be the residents, local um, businesses like fisher, fishermen and so forth, and communities of interest like NGOs and governments. And we've talked about this to some extent, but just if you could say a bit more about the dynamics um, in your present and previous reef to rigs pro uh, <laughs> rigs to reefs projects um, in terms of dealing with those kinds of uh, stakeholder conflicts. Um, we're big in project management on stakeholder engagement. You've already talked to without perhaps knowing the idea of moving uh, stakeholders from a current state to a desired state. Um, you talked about the fact that uh, I believe it was the fishing industry being a an opponent and now moving towards becoming, a, in some cases, a proponent. So what tensions like that have you seen? And uh, how have you moved people from a current state of perhaps being against it happening to a future state um, or desired state of helping it happen? That, that's a great question. And stakeholder engagement is a big part of the work that we do because the value of these structures as an artificial reef is not apparent from your beach chair. And it's something that takes time to understand. But what we use is imagery, meaningful messages, presenting the science to these different stakeholder groups. And we're able to work with them to sort of change the tide of public perception and stakeholder perception around not only the goals of these, of this project, but the outcomes and the potential long-term opportunities or benefits that it could provide for specific stakeholders. So we, we dive into what those, you know, maybe do a little case study here. I'm thinking of a platform in the Gulf of Mexico that was in very close proximity to the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary. So that's a offshore marine reserve that's managed by the federal government. And it's been protected because there are abundant coral and fish aggregations there. It's an incredible and unique spot. And so it deserves this protection. Now, this oil platform is right on the perimeter and they look to decommission it. Many studies were done that found that it was a viable reef habitat, that it was actually producing marine life that was benefiting that national marine sanctuary. So this stakeholder, which is a, a, a government body that's for aiming to preserve and protect the ocean and typically does not overlap with offshore oil and gas, they actually expanded the boundaries of the national marine sanctuary to include this reef structure because it had an added so much value. And the only way that they were able to do that was through the share of information and through um, the ability for the oil companies to communicate with the natural resource managers in the Gulf of Mexico. So in the Gulf of Mexico, they see a lot of success with this. They've got an entire committee on which they have members of Department of Fish and Wildlife sitting with members from some of the federal agencies that are governing our offshore resources and stakeholders from the oil and gas industry and fishing industries. They're all together in committees talking about issues that they have offshore. And so when this particular issue was brought up, um, they came to a consensus that it would be to the benefit of the Marine Reserve to expand its boundaries to include this platform. So like to, I like sharing that story because it's kind of a, a positive example of how you can 
information share in a, and cross industries and, and sectors to, you know, and do something that's good for, for the environment. So that's one example that, that I like to share. And I would just speak to the fisheries as well, because I know that we kind of touched on that a little bit and it is another a critical stakeholder. Communicating with that stakeholder can be a little bit more challenging because it's difficult to understand where that fishing pressure is in relation to the structure. So we know that there are fishermen offshore, but where specifically are they and what resources do they depend on can be harder to quantify. So what we do at Blue Latitudes is we actually work with Global Fishing Watch, which is a organ nonprofit organization that takes satellite and terrestrial pings from um, AIS, which are vessels, commercial vessels offshore, constantly pinging their AIS. And they've developed an algor algorithm that can look at those, look at that data and actually tell us where fishing is happening and parse out any of the transiting. So we're just looking specifically at fishing pressure. That's been a very valuable tool for us to quantify where those fishermen are going in relation to these potential reefing sites and share that information, not only with the regulators, but also with the fishing industry. So they better understand where their fish shock is sourced from, as well as what implications or impacts they might they might have from a future reefing event. So that's been another really great tool for us to communicate with that particular stakeholder. Yeah, this really speaks to the idea that we try to teach in our programs um, about leadership and communications being very, very related. And what you're we really talked at the core of what you said, Amber, is the idea that people are working from facts. They're not working from confirmation bias. They're, they're jointly, you get people to get to sit together and look at actual data, um, scientific data together, um, jointly interpret that um, and take action based on facts, as opposed to, you know, I've got my set of facts and I've got my set of facts and um, w we're going to keep them close to the vest. So, um, I, I appreciate the answer and I appreciate the work in that area. Nigel, can you shift us to the land and the ocean of uncertainty? Certainly. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. So when we're doing projects, and this is more nitty project management stuff, we spend a lot of time talking about risk management. So, uh, and we define risk really as uncertainty, not necessarily negative because in the financial sector, um, Risk can be both positive and negative. Risk is associated with return, so associated with um, with loss. And um, risk has two domains. There's ambiguity where you don't know, and variability where you know that something's going to happen. You don't know how much of it's going to happen or not happen. So you you did actually identify risk in some of your earlier points, but uh, what approaches did you use, if if any, to identify and communicate these risks that could happen in our, to our projects. Um, I'm going to DM. Well said. <laughs> um, so we, we were doing the, we had just started uncertainty, correct? Yeah, we had, yes. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. So I, I can repeat if, if, if you want, Emily, because uh, uh, I'll be I'm editing this back in. in anyway. I'm ready to hop in, but it's up to you how you want to transition the podcast there. Um, I, look, can I make? I wanted to make one comment um, sure. about to kind of follow up on um, how you how you make um, this more appealing to 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 communities. About and I wanted to bring up your videos, the videos that where you have these amazing, you know, um, and this one in particular, I can't I can't remember the name of it, um, but it's a really long, beautiful. I think it's on Vimeo. Um, yeah, I've seen those. Uh, so I, I wanted to. I mean the visualization of this and showing the 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 reef. So I, I don't know if I if it makes sense if we start now uh, with just a quick comment on that and then move to the uncertainty question. Is that all right? Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. Go okay. ahead. Go ahead. Richard. Yeah. Um, and Amber, it was you speaking about um, making these uh, making the community aware of how how because it's under the it's below the surface of the ocean, right? right. You were making okay. All right. 
So I'd just like to follow up with a, a comment about making um, making what's normally under the waterline um, visible. And uh, I, I wanted to reflect on a couple of videos I've seen from uh, produced by um, Emily and Amber and their team. I really would point our viewers to to watch these videos, and they'll they'll provide you with the links. But just to see how the coral and the various species of fish. Um, thrive um, in this undersea um, environment tacked on to the, um, the infrastructure of the former uh, rig is, is impressive and just beautiful, just worth watching. So I would, I would uh, encourage our viewers and other stakeholders uh, to take a look at those, those videos. It, a, picture, uh, a moving picture is worth millions of words, in my opinion. Okay, let's move on to uh, uncertainty. Certainly. Or in fact, rich millions of data points, because I teach quantitative methods, and those numbers don't really convince people as well as a good video can. Absolutely. So, um, just going back to a quick discussion we, ha we had um, before the break, which was that um, in project management, we talk a lot about risk management, and we look at risk in, in, in multiple ways, that risk can both be positive and negative, we take the idea from finance that risk is associated with return. So there's such a thing as positive risk as well as negative risk. And the idea that um, uncertainty has two domains, there's ambiguity where you simply don't know, the unknown unknowns in a particular person's parlance, if you remember that. And there's um, variability where we have an idea that something would occur, we don't know when or how much or, or to what extent. So you did touch on risk on, on, at multiple points in this discussion. So the, the question really is in terms of what approaches do you use or did you use to identify and communicate possible positive and negative uncertainties in our, our projects? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> so in communicating risk, there's really two different stakeholders that you're dealing with. You're dealing with how you want to communicate this to an oil company when you're working on a risk to reach project with them. Um, and also how you want to communicate this with the public. With the public, in our opinion, um, honesty is the best policy. The transparency is key. There are a lot of questions on rigs to reefs that we don't have answers for yet. The biggest one being, you know, we've only had oil platforms in our waters for 50, 60, maybe 70 years. We don't really know what happens to these structures, you know, in 100, 200 years after they've been reefed. You know, we can look at models like shipwrecks and how they start to deteriorate over time, but you're really different dealing with different materials and a totally different type of structure. That's an unknown. We don't know what will happen. We can share what we believe will happen. We can share what happens to similar type models like shipwrecks, things like that. But that's always a big unknown for the public and a big unknown for scientists because we really can't deal with or answer that question until we have these case studies that have lasted that long. Um, and we have a lot of other examples like that. You know, how much money is saved by an oil company? It's it's important to be transparent about that. How much money goes to the state? It's important to be transparent about that. And even just on a case by case basis, not every platform is a good candidate to be reefed. So we find that transparency and sharing those those questions and addressing those questions, and sometimes even saying we're not sure yet, is always more effective because it's honest. Um, when it comes to the oil companies, it's a much more um, a structured response. A lot of times what we'll do is a formal risk assessment where we look at different methodologies, whether that be completely removing our structure or um, removing part of it and leaving part of it in place as a reef um, or towing it to an alternative location. We'll look at all of those alternatives and weigh the risks and the pros and cons of each alternative. And at the end of the day, some of those two options, you know, whether that be towing it to an alternative location or completely removing, they might be very close in terms of the results that we get. And then it comes down to the oil company to make the ultimate decision as to how they would like to proceed. Good. I, I, I like that. So it's the idea of ethical communications that it's not a matter what we've got some objective, we want to work backwards to get it, but rather you have a, a conversation that you set up with various stakeholders to say, okay, this is what could happen. These are the benefits you can have, and these are the uncertainties. And and then it's it's a much more negotiated process rather than you you try to sell something and then work backwards to justify it. To um, to Nigel's earlier point about uh, quantitative analysis, it, it what you said, Emily, is kind of smacks of um, 
of simulation. So I'm wondering, do you have have people developed um, simulation for um, for this so, as a way to communicate what might happen? Um, yes, I mean we we we've actually done a few models. Like our best example that we have is fortunately in California. These platforms are actually cleaned routinely down to 60, 80 feet because the drag that's created by so many layers of marine growth. So it, it's, it threatens the structural integrity of the platform. So we can actually model how quickly it takes for marine life to come back and reach sort of a state of um, community equilibrium. That works for the ecosystems, but then you, we got to think about these structures. I mean, they're massive. We're not talking about structures that are the size of a you know small boat. These are the size of the Empire State Building. What if there's an earthquake? Um, what if it collapses? Uh, you know, what will be those impacts? And when it comes to that, we can do small scale studies, but there's always a level of unknown. Um, we know they're made of galvanized steel, which is a very, very strong um, combination of metals. It's very strong and can last a long time in the water. But again, all this weight of the marine life on the structure, you know, when, at what point do we say we don't want divers on the structure? At what point do we say it's going to collapse? Um, there will always be those question marks. We, you know, the, the data that's out there now, they tell us that the platform should be able to stand anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years without collapse. We'll have to wait and see if that's actually the case. That will be uh, episode 5,206, I believe. We'll bury this one in a time capsule and send it to them. Yeah. Okay, um, I think we're on to our next question. We're on to our next one, Rich. Um, so, um, shifting to stakeholders again, what do communities do and what have they done to signal their support for uh, Rigs to Reef? Well, that's a great question because a lot of communities maybe aren't aware of the Riggs Reef option, but I know that in places like the Gulf of Mexico where they're actively reefed, the communities participate in the reefing by going out there on the weekends and recreationally fishing off these structures, or maybe they're really interested in diving. They're destinations for the community um, to enjoy. And that's a little different than what we see in California where there are only three platforms that can be publicly accessed for diving, and there are community members that do go out there and dive. But in a more formal sense, a way for communities to share their support for this Riggs to Reef option, uh, that's something that we've thought long and hard about is how can we how can we create that? So Blue Latitudes has been funded by Patagonia for many years. We've been a grant recipient from them, and one of the one of the options and support that they offer is for us to create petitions. And so we have a petition through our profile on Patagonia where people can go and sign to show their support for a reefing alternative in areas like California, where maybe we have a rig street law, but it hasn't been implemented yet. Um, that petition is also linked on our website and we like to share it when we go around. So we'd be happy to and go around and talk about reef so we'd be happy to share that link with, with you all as well and with your listen, listeners here. Yeah, good. I mean, we talked earlier before we even started the podcast about how you help how, how politicians work and gain their gain power and retain power. And, you know, obviously bottom up support and bubbling up um, uh, support from things like petitions um, is one way that you communicate to a politician that it would be a wise decision to go along with this move. Okay, um, we can move to the next question, I think. Yeah, certainly. So, and this kind of also builds on the on, uh, on the last question that, that we, um, we discussed was that in addition to the, the direct economic benefits and stuff of, of our, our project, there are some other sources of value that might emerge, such as things like um, tourism, tour operations, leisure, sport, and, and, and so on. Do you quantify, and if you do, how do you quantify these potential usage, uses of um, RTRs by other stakeholders? This is a great, great question. I'm actually glad, glad you're bringing it up because this is something we're currently working on. Um, it's come up a lot recently, especially in our work in California, is 
in California, divers love to go to these structures. And, you know, there's different types of fisheries that use some use these structures, some don't like these structures. Um, in areas like Malaysia, they've converted a platform for ecotourism. Is that something that can be um, replicated in other areas of the world? And unfortunately, there's not a lot of papers written about this very specific niche, um, but it's something that we've been working with various technologies to be able to track. Um, some things that we've been working with um, is with Global Fishing Watch, and they actually track um, commercial fishing vessels, and they can basically using satellite data pings. And so we can track how they're interacting with these structures or using these structures, but that's only one slice of the pie. You know, that's commercial fisheries. What about recreational fisheries? What about dive operators? And that's when we start getting into the nitty gritty of looking at um, dive operator logs. How often are they going out to these structures? Are they packing um, full boats? You know, it's, it's something that we're starting to, we're only scraping the surface of, and there's a lot more data to be gathered we know just from the fact that we go out to the platforms to go diving so often that this is a thriving industry. What would be the impact, you know, in terms of tourism dollars? And if you don't have these platforms anymore, what would be the impact is something that we're still only just starting to scrape the surface of and understand. Um, I think a lot of times people discounted these platforms as serving any sort of recreational value. They really focused on just environment and, you know, industry. But there is this whole thriving industry that builds and utilizes these structures um, as part of their, their business model. So this is something that we're actively trying to understand and um, quantify and certainly something we don't have the answer for yet, other than we can say that we know divers are using these structures, we know recreational fishermen are going out there, we know commercial fishermen are. What, how do we quantify that value? Great. I, I remember when I worked offshore a long time ago that we used to fish off those platforms, so I completely understand the recreational fishing part of it. And um, another set of parallel discussion, in, in the last 20 or 30 years, industrial assets have been repurposed, used industrial assets, like old factory shells and stuff, have been repurposed into entertainment or tourism destinations. So this is an interesting extension to look at a sort of an industrial heritage, but it's offshore. That it's part of your your industrial past, but it could be part of your community or tourist or visitor future, entertainment future, if if you if you wanted to put it that way. So it, it it's a kind of a way of extending its life and and transforming these assets into different economic purposes. But of yeah, course, absolutely. that would need to be quantified. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that was what we actually went to the platform in Malaysia that was converted into a hotel. And it was a jackup rig that actually originally came from the Panama Canal and ended up in Malaysia for tourism purposes only. Um, so it, it it's something that we know goes on. You know, they're looking at this in the Gulf, not just from a public perspective, but how can we convert these platforms for research purposes? They can house 150 people. Could we make these offshore floating research institutes? So it's something that's certainly being explored right now. And we're actively working on trying to quantify that value. Excellent. More, more repurposing, That's right? Great. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Who knows? We could probably have a, a follow-up discussion and doing another case study in this area. It might be quite useful. Absolutely. So we've come to the point now where we're going to ask if we have not asked any questions that we should have. And I'm going to just frame it a little bit by uh, making this relevant to news from the last couple of days. Um, you can respond to it in that way if you would like or not. Um, and that is the release of the most recent, very large and very alarming um, IPCC report. Um, but, but just in general, are there any questions that you'd like to answer that we just haven't asked? Well, I'm glad you brought up the IPCC report. I think that it, it rings a bell that we've known about for a long time, but in a new way. It's calling a code red for human driven global heating that we are just barely about to hit that threshold of, um, of no return, where the IPCC is very concerned about how quickly our global planet is warming up and how that's going to impact our water supply, our oceans, our terrestrial life. 
it's all connected and the warming of our planet and global climate change is a significant contributor to some of the negative impacts that we're starting to see. And it's important that we, we think about rigs to reef and this idea in the context, the greater context of ocean conservation and the utilization of our re existing resources for the benefit of the environment. What we're finding is that it's no longer us against them. We can't have the scientists and the industry sitting on two sides of the table. They need to be able to work together to make effective changes to meet and um, to meet and exceed some of the the methods for change that are outlined in the IPCC report. And the only way to do that is by really working together. So through this Riggs Reef program, I think something that's kind of a higher, high arching sort of theoretical idea is that you can reach across the table. You can work with different industries to try and find solutions that would benefit the environment. And now is the time. Now we know more than we ever have in years, years past. And with this knowledge, how are we going to act on it and work together for the betterment of our planet? Right. We're talking about 195 nations word for word agreeing with um, about 200 scientists assessment of the situation. And that's just to get 195 nations to agree on anything, not just word for word is um, tells us that there's some unanimity here. Definitely. I mean, the report's what, 1800 pages, so it takes some time to unpick it in its entirety, but definitely there's a lot there. Any other questions that we should have asked that we didn't? You know, I can't think of anything that you didn't ask that doesn't really touch on this issue, but I do think, Rich, you brought up an important point about how we think about these projects. No one ever likes to think about the end of any project. But I think especially now, as we're rapidly rolling out new technologies and we're rapidly rolling out um, new ideas for how to develop energy and energy efficient cars and batteries. And I would encourage everybody to think about the end of life of your resources. You know, you, you can do that in your own home or when you choose to make informed decisions on the purchases that you make, because a lot of times we're going to have to get a little creative here. You know, we're, we're not in this situation where we've got endless time and endless resources but we have a tremendous opportunity to be creative and a tremendous opportunity to be creative about what we do with our existing resources, how we manage those resources and how we think about the end of their useful lives. Um, you know, that can be anything from, of course, an oil and gas platform, but how we think about offshore aquaculture or how we think about wind farms. I think it's important to think about the end of life of your projects, but not necessarily thinking about the end of life. It may be the end of life for that specific project, but the new beginning of something else um, where it can be, you know, become part of the circular economy that I think ultimately will lead to a more healthier and greener planet is if we can all get on board with this circular economic approach and think creatively about how we're managing our ocean resources and to not manage our resources in a way that's traditional. I think that's gonna be key is for us to think creative. New traditions, perhaps. Exactly. Okay, um, Nigel, any follow-up? Well, I think that's a great point to, to end on actually. We have to think of new norms, new practices and new traditions. You know, we've gotten so far off with the old ones, but now it's time to change. And that change, that impetus is to change is that, that much more urgent now. It's it's no longer something we can consider doing. We have to do everything at once and in parallel. Agree. So I think we've reached the end of this podcast. Um, I really appreciate our uh, guests, uh, Emily and Amber, being here. Um, I really encourage you to take a look at the links that we'll provide to videos and um, just explanations of what they're all about um, and in turn other resources that they uh, will point you to. But for me, that's it. I, again, with a lot of thanks and acknowledgement to uh, Blue Latitudes, 
uh, and in particular, Emily and Amber for being our guests on our very first podcast. Well, thank you so much for having us. We've really enjoyed the conversation with you both. It's always fun to get into the weeds on some of these issues and learn different perspectives. Under seaweeds. Seaweeds, exactly. Go diving in. You can go forever on these. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to remember the seaweeds of puns one time or the other, so let's, let's not overdo it. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank, thank you. Thanks again, guys. Great. Bye. I'll just stop the recording at this point. Right. And.